I'm very pleased to be joined by Elizabeth Vargas, an American journalist, a news anchor, and more importantly, an inspiration to many, many millions of people out there with her courage, perseverance, tenacity. How did it feel to be back in the anchor chair? It was great. You know, um, I had not done sort of the daily news grind in several years. The last, you know, 15 years I was at ABC. I was the anchor of 2020. I replaced Barbara Walters in that job and loved doing documentary work. And then after I left ABC, I did a lot of documentary work. I started a syndicated show called iCrime, which we just launched season two of. And I got the call, you know, do you want to come back and and anchor a weeknight show at this brand new cable news network that literally is only a few months old um, called News Nation. And I thought real hard about it. And honestly, it is such an historic news cycle right now that we're going through that I thought, you know what, I'm going to dive back in for a few more years and, and cover the daily news. And it's just been, wow, what a wild ride. You know, we are really living through some historical moments right now, and I'm really excited to be reporting on it. How do you think about this moment in the context of history over a career that you know we're roughly the same age that you know the dominant events in it were the collapse of the Berlin Wall right politically and then the attacks on 9/11 and we have lived long enough uh, to see a moment where a former president of the United States leading in his party's nomination contest by 50 points on the same day is saying he's going to shut down Comcast. He's going to take NBC off the air. He's going to lock up journalists and he wants to execute the chairman of the of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. How, how do you sort through that? Not in the context of the event, the details of it, but the meaning of it. And is that a role for a journalist in the first place to try to extrapolate some meaning or context from those statements? That's a lot in that question. Um, first of all, you're right. Um, we have been um, incredibly fortunate, I think, to live through some real um Flex moments, you know, in history. Um, certainly, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. I'm an army brat. My, I was living in Germany. Uh, I remember when the wall was still up. We went when I was a small child to Berlin, and um, and saw the wall, and then it coming down, and that changing so radically geopolitically what was happening in the world. And of course, 9/11. I worked. Um, I was in New York City when that happened. I will never forget that. Um, it's funny, I still, I just picked up a book called The Only Plane in the Sky, and I started reading it. And it's a compilation of interviews with different people all over um, in government and just ordinary citizens stuck in the towers. And I still had an, an intense emotional reaction to it this many years later. Um, so I, I think you can't help but be profoundly affected and impacted by the statements, you know, in the book and what we've lived through historically. I think that certainly what's happening today, you know, we are extremely polarized as a society and we have people 
who are using rhetoric that um, can be extreme and sometimes irresponsible. And it's important to report on those things and and talk about what these people are saying. And And yet I'm very cognizant and aware of the fact that we're so polarized, we're not going to reach everybody if we only report from silos. I guess what I'm trying to say is it's important to to state what's happening, to put it into context, to explain the importance of it without, and this is my mission statement as a journalist, I, I'm, I'm not on t- television to share my opinion on things. Um, and I think part of what's wrong with cable news right now is it's very siloed and people go not for information so much as for affirmation of their own political viewpoints. And um, I think it's really important right now to try and talk about these things and get that information out there. And yet without alienating members of the audience who might have, I, I think you will enlighten people more if you can just set the facts out and let them draw their own conclusions. I'm, I might be foolish in giving a lot of faith, but I do have a lot of faith, I think, in the American electorate. I think people do listen and I think they do that stuff does get in. And if I'm not also hectoring them and lecturing them on what they need to think and, and how they need to think, that they might I might have a better chance of reaching more people from different and disparate points of view. Maybe that's naive, but it's certainly what I'm trying to do. I spent I spent 10 years. And by the way, I just want to say um, you referenced, you know, what I've been through. I'm a person in recovery and long term recovery. Now I've been very open about it. I've written a book about it. I have a podcast. I'm on the board of directors of the partnership to end addiction. Mental health and substance abuse disorder is something that crosses all party lines. It's rural. It's urban. Um, Red state, blue state. You know, it, it doesn't matter what political party you are. You can still you are still suffering from this. So there are many, many really big and important issues in this country that cross political lines. I would, because you said that, do you do you have an appreciation um, politically in the country, which seems lost on a lot of the politicians and commentators, that you had an excess of one million Americans who have been killed by opioids? Yeah. And that number, that number will climb. Mm-hmm. Those opioids that they became addicted to uh, were were told they were told were safe yeah. by uh, by the FDA. Right. Within a few years, the government comes back and says, not only is this vaccine safe, and I took the vaccine, and and I believe vaccines are safe, but I'm talking about the politics of it. Absolutely. We we had our government said Oxy is safe and our government let Purdue Pharma falsely and aggressively market a drug that they knew was addictive and was unsafe. So now when our government says the vaccines are safe, do you have any wonder that people say, I don't believe you? Of course not. Right. And the media role in this was that it was invisible. Nobody talked about this in America as a matter of policy at a national level until 2016. It's when the it's when the issue appeared on the on the national stage in the context of a of a presidential campaign. And you have a group of people who then in the coverage of the vaccine 
and the people that refuse to get it, the frame of that coverage, I think that so much of the country heard is you people are ignorant, you people are stupid. And that condescension has a profound impact on the, in my view, the collapse of trust between the American people and the institutions, the news media that inform them, because millions of Americans feel judged by those institutions. I think anytime you lead with you're you're stupid, you don't know what you're talking about, you've lost your audience. And right. that unfortunately is what the vaccine debate devolved into. I too am vaccinated. I got vaccinated. I got my kids vaccinated. Um but I understand very clearly why so many people had such distrust about the vaccines. And we now know there was a lot that we did wrong during the pandemic. We know that the lockdowns of schools had a profound negative impact on our children and their learning and in their emotional stability and well-being. We are paying the price of that right now. And I think if we can't look back with clear eyes and admit what we did wrong and assess what we could do better next time and be honest about it without being defensive and judgmental, we are not going to learn. I mean, it is okay to make mistakes, Steve. Everybody, in, we're human beings. Our government is made up of human beings who make mistakes sometimes and get things right sometimes. Everybody makes mistakes. There's nothing wrong with making a mistake. There is something wrong with refusing to admit that you did something wrong, that you got it wrong somehow. And I think we do a great disservice not to acknowledge there were some parts of the vaccine response that worked and some parts of the vaccine response that did not work. And not to acknowledge there is a very real reason why some people don't trust what the government is telling them. It is based on actual reality. We have an FDA, almost 50% of the FDA budget comes from big pharma. I'm not saying I understand why that happens. Why should the American taxpayer fund the testing of a brand new drug by some company that's going to make a boatload of cash off of that once it gets approved? And if it's safe, it's out there. I get it. Let's have Big Pharma fund that. But the result is Big Pharma funds nearly half of the FDA. And people look at that and they wonder, well, are you in the pocket of Big Pharma? You look at what happened with Purdue Pharma. You look at the fact that the FDA official in charge of approving oxycodone later on went to go work for Purdue Pharma. It's a revolving door, and it's not just big pharma. You know this. You've been in politics for a very long time. We have a big revolving door of people who go in and out of government and then in and out of special interests, and it it it, it messes with the credibility, and the American people very legitimately have a lot of cynicism when they say, wait a minute, you're telling me that's good for me? How do I know? How do I know that's true? And I think that's kind of, I think those kinds of questions are good. Our job as journalists is to investigate that and to take the questions and the skepticism, even cynicism seriously, and 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 delve into the answers and report all the facts. Um, but I think to just say to somebody, to a huge segment of the population, you're crazy, you don't know what you're talking about, you're uninformed, you're you're not very smart, you're, it, it, you know, okay, there it is, end, end of discussion. You've lost the audience, you've lost the ability to debate the point, you've lost the ability to engage in what is, you know, a constructive exchange of ideas, because it's always good, you know, if you're only talking all the time to people who agree with you, you're never going to learn anything. You're never going to appreciate or understand the political differences that currently exist in this country and are deepening and dividing. 
I had uh, an experience. I drove my son um, back to school in New Hampshire, across the country from Santa Barbara, through California, Oregon, Washington, up through British Columbia, 4,200 mile trip. And one of my observations from it was the degree to which the news, such as it is, and we talk about it ubiquitously, monolithically, which is which isn't appropriate, right? Because yeah. OAN is the news, Newsmax is the news, right? Fox is the news, and you're in a you're in a very different business. But the news, such as it is, on that drive, my overwhelming impression was how little the lives of the people I was driving by. No idea what their politics were, anything about their lives, but how detached those lives were from anything that's talked about on television news. Mm-hmm. It's true. Um, and I don't, you know, I uh, I went to college in Missouri, University of Missouri, which is a fantastic school of journalism. Um, you know, uh, my first job was in Reno, Nevada. Second job was in Phoenix, Arizona. Third job was in Chicago, Illinois. Um, there are whole parts of the middle of this country that I think are largely ignored. Um, you know, we saw that with East Palestine. Um, you know, that's something that the network that I work for now, News Nation, has been, we jumped on that. We knew people would leave. The other networks would leave, and they did. And we stayed and have continued to stay and break news there, you know, every week or so. I have Rich McHugh on my show doing some sort of investigative piece. But we're there in that town showing those people that they count and that they matter. Um, And that when everybody else leaves, we're still there. But you know what? We're the only ones there. Um, We're seeing, you know, it's interesting in the coverage of this UAW strike, because this is a whole section of America that people tend not to think about. The folks who get up every day and go to a plant and work 10 hours on their feet, making the cars that we just buy and never think about all that work that went into it and never fully appreciate that, you know, they're making, they gave up so much in 2008 to help save the big car companies. Mm -hmm. And now the car companies are making record profits and they want a piece of the pie. Why is Mary Barra earning $30 million a year? And these guys are wondering if they they can't afford to buy the cars they make. Is that fair? No. It's not. It's not. And um, you know, I just think that getting into the heartland of this country, um, you know, that's where my life was spent until I came moved to New York City, where all the networks are based. Um, there's a whole culture out there and a whole world out there. I, I, I don't know if you ever saw the documentary American Factory, I think it was called. Um, it was a wonderful documentary about an American factory bought by a Chinese company and the clash of cultures between Americans and the Chinese. But it was it was also a real window of what it was like to be an American citizen, a high school graduate working a blue collar job, just wanting to work hard and get fair pay Mm -hmm. and what their lives were like. And I just think it's really I think people tend to forget that and they don't appreciate that. Um, And I think we'd be better served if we remembered that that it's we we can't 
have everybody living on the coasts and going to college. We need everybody, you know, to make to make everything work here. Somebody's got to make the cars. Somebody's got to drive the trucks. Somebody's got to deliver the food. Somebody's got to pick the food. Somebody's got to grow the food. Somebody's got to milk the cows. You know, all those things have to happen for this great country to continue to just just exist day in and day out so that we have something to buy at the grocery store and we have something to drive to get to the grocery store. And I think the more we appreciate the people who are doing that hard work that we don't ever think about day in and day out, often in the middle of the country, um, the better we'll be. There's an incredible political speech on this subject, um, almost spot on in terms of hitting the nail on the head that Teddy Roosevelt gave in mm. 1904 in the railroad town of Dunsmuir, California, which is in the shadow of Mount Shasta. And it is exactly what you're talking about, the society at large, and that everybody who works should be treated with dignity, with respect, yep. and has a role to play in the functioning of the society that's no greater, no less than anybody else's vital, vital role. And it's that's exactly a really remarkable concept um, that we've lost on. I wanted to ask you this. Um, so I spent 10 years at NBC News um, as, a, as an analyst, and I got to know Tom Brokaw there. He's one of the loveliest people so great. in my life, just one of the greatest guys. And Tom Brokaw, as I got to know him, was astounded by the fact the Schmidt family did not watch Tom Brokaw. <laughs> we were we were an ABC household in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. We watched Bill Butel, Eyewitness News. You had Bernard Shaw on CNN. Yeah, you had Rather Brokaw and Peter Jennings. Um, and so Peter Jennings was the anchor man. Peter Jennings told you what was happening in the world. And before Peter Jennings traced memory of Frank Reynolds, who, I, who I'm sure you, you knew as well, if, if those guys were still here and they came back today and you said, Peter, here's what's going on. What would he say? State of journalism. Oh, or, Politics. Well, first of all, I had the great fortune of working with both Tom and Peter. Um, Tom Brokaw was at NBC News when I came. I was thinking I was only 29 years old from Chicago and was so kind and so generous. Um, I just have enormous respect for him. And then I worked with Peter at World News Tonight. And eventually, when Peter died of lung cancer, I was named anchor of World News Tonight um, with Bob Woodruff. And then there's a whole story there. But right. um, I don't know what they would make of the state of journalism or the state of politics today, because it's changed radically both. Um Although, you know, I, you know, listen, I was interviewing somebody, an historian on my show the other night, and I was talking about how divided we are. There was a new poll out that just showed record levels of not just division, uh, and but also among the electorate polled disgust for both parties, not one or the other, but for both. Like people, Americans are overwhelmingly right now disgusted by the state of politics. And, um, you know, I was asking him, oh, my gosh, it's never been this bad. And they said, yes, it has. Yeah, it has. 
it was it was America was very divided uh, in, during Vietnam. We were very divided, obviously, in the Civil War. We nearly tore our country apart. Um, you know, they had, as historians, sort of the long view that we will get through this, you know. But while you're in it, it feels pretty horrible. <laughs> you know, it just feels existential. Um, I don't know what, I, I know that both Peter and Tom were journalists of the highest caliber. They did not share their opinions. Uh, they believed deeply and deeply reporting the facts and had enormous experience. I mean, Peter first, uh, his first try at being anchor of the of World News Tonight uh, was a failure. And he went back to the Middle East and was the bureau chief and correspondent, you know, you know, in in Beirut and proved his chops and got more experience. And I mean, at that point, that was what really mattered. You know, no anchor was an anchor without serving many, many years in the field reporting. And that's the, you know, the key thing. You can't really know what you're talking about if you haven't been there. Um if you haven't seen firsthand, you know, what's happening and that matters around the world in war zones and in places, you know, inflection places where there are inflection points. And, and the Middle East is certainly one of those Europe where I grew up is another, um, obviously now increasingly China. Uh, but also as we were just talking about in this country, you know, covering this country, don't just cover it from New York city, um, or Washington DC, you've got to go there and, and, and see for yourself what that's like. It's interesting to hear you talk about the frame of history with uh, the historian. And he's right. There has never been a genteel time in American history. It's always been a high wire act. The country on the second day at the Battle of Gettysburg came literally within 60 seconds of ending with the Confederates almost getting to the high ground that would have put them between the Union Army and Washington, D.C. The most valorous act in the history of the U.S. military by combat casualties was the charge of 275 men by the 1st Minnesota on the command of William Scott Hancock, a suicide charge, 82 percent casualties against 3,000 charging Alabamans um, who were able to exploit a whole in the line caused by a New York congressman named Dan Sickles, who very famously got away with shooting his wife's lover in broad daylight in uh, Lafayette Square, uh, proving a century and a half uh, before Trump said it that you could actually uh, get away with that in New York politics, shooting someone in broad daylight. But that act, that charge saved the, saved the union. What what some people would say, even during the Vietnam War, times of immense cultural division, is that the country's political institutions did not stop functioning in the way that they have ceased to function in this in this moment. When I talk to audiences, the thing that I try to stress to them in a what we share in common is this entire society is built around a radical concept, which is that we pick our leaders. And if you immolate the election process, 
if it's only a fair election, if you win, mm -hmm. and, and I say that as someone who placed the concession phone call for John McCain to, to Barack Obama, and it was an honor, it was an honor to do that. The society doesn't go on. It, it collapses. There's, there's no workaround. We can have an American society with a 95% tax rate. We can have an American society with a 5% tax rate. We can have an American society with Social Security, without Social Security, without a safety net, with a safety net, but not without elections. And this seems to me it's the elemental story of our time. And, and what I wanted to ask you is, how do you perceive this moment? Do you, do you view this like I do, which is we're living in the middle of now a seven-year story that's unfolding still. We don't know where it's going. But that story and its accumulation and its total is the story of the rise of one of the greatest threats in the country's history that, that really seeks at a fundamental way it's gotten there uh, to strip away uh, the essence of the American Revolution for power. Listen, the story? well, I... I am going to steer clear of commenting specifically on um, on uh, former President Donald Trump being the greatest threat, as you called him, to Donald Trump lost the election. Donald Trump tried very hard to overturn that election. I think, as many people have testified, um, uh, people, members of his own team. Um, and it and it held people like you know the georgia secretary of state um it held um our democracy held together uh i think that democracy only works if you respect the results of a free and fair election and um yes it is absolutely not only disruptive but destructive to question um, elections when there is no evidence of substantial fraud that would have changed that election. Um, and I think people who continue to say it was stolen um, despite overwhelming evidence that it was not can help contribute to certainly um, an erosion of trust in a process that we all need to have faith in. Everybody needs to trust that when I go cast my vote, somebody will count it and that all these votes will be counted and that they will matter um, in the end and that we will all get to choose the next president, the next senator, the next congressman, the next mayor, the next council member um, accurately and fairly. Um, so... Yes, I think it's in incredibly um, dangerous to continue to threaten democracy that way and, and to question the results of an election. But I, uh, I, I have, listen, I, do, I think a lot of people under an enormous amount of stress and pressure did the right thing 
in the 2020 election. Um, and I, I hope that that will happen again in 2024. Um, there's a phrase, I tell this to my kids, um, you know, you'll hear a cliche, like, don't shoot the messenger. And I'm like, the reason that's a phrase is because someone someday way back shot the messenger, right? Yeah. Probably, probably more than, I guess you're right. More, probably more than one. Right. And, um, so you talked about being on air, um, on September 11th and these dates and, um, you know, you're a pro. It's a it's a skill to sit there to do that on television. It's a lot harder. And I'm not talking about being an analyst. I'm talking about the job that that you did, being an anchor. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's it's a it's a very very small percentage of the human population that can that can do that effectively. Um, and keep your poise right in a in a moment of of unbelievable tragedy so on election night 2020 we now know from fox news you have the anchor of fox news and i never conceived of this as a possibility when you look at the totality of everything that that what happened and i don't feel like this has been lingered on enough brett bear when he learn the news and the news right networks go spend a lot of money right to report the news on an election night right it's a big global news who's going to be the president of the united states mm -hmm. it's going to be joe biden you have the anchor of the network sitting there in 2020 saying ah, mm, audience isn't going to like this we're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to let them down softly as we as we tell them the news. How do, how do you process that? Because that to me is almost beyond comprehension that that happened. I think a lot of journalists felt the same way. Listen, we don't know exactly what happened. These are reports, but certainly I think the most um, damning evidence of all of this emerged in the Dominion lawsuit, you know, text messages and emails that were released as part of discovery. And it showed that um, Fox News, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine this as a newsflash to anybody who watches Fox News, but that they were, um, you know, Listen, it showed a lot of things, those text messages and emails, uh, and a lot of them contradictory. But uh, they were very concerned about telling the audience what it wanted to hear. And that is backwards. Um, as journalists, we should be telling the facts as we know them as and, and make clear this is this is how we've come to, you know, this is what we have learned. This is what we've talked to. We've investigated this, and this is what we've learned. Or in the case of election night, these are the results uh, that we are being told. Um, I, 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 you know, clearly even then there was a reluctance to tell their audience news they knew their audience would not like. And um, remember on election night at that point, it's projections you know, we we haven't, in fact, counted every vote in Arizona, but we know from vast experience and their political dust got it right. They were the first 
to call Arizona. And they, and, and they were out there on that limb, that very thin limb for, what was it, several days before other networks joined them. It was, it was a lonely place to be and a very provocative and, um, as you can read from the Dominion Discovery you know, material, um, there was enormous pressure within Fox and from Fox journalists and Fox News anchors, you know, that we, we should go back. We should uncall this for Arizona. We should wait and see. And what on earth is that? What are they what are they doing calling this for Joe Biden so early? Uh, <clears throat> but, you know, their political desk stuck with it. Again, again many members, of, I think a couple members of that desk were later fired for getting the call right. Yeah. I I want to I want to ask you one more politics question about the frame around which news generally is reported. And you can push back on me if you think that this is a unfair kind of framing of this writ large. Generally speaking, I think the American people are told relentlessly almost repeated as a dogma that the country is a evenly divided and that the country is hopelessly divided right on the on the edge of this of this civil war and so all of the polling uh, that you talked about right the repugnance the disgust all all of that stuff is there and it's real but i'm going to give you two policy issues and one political issue that i think really demonstrate the country is not hopelessly divided and not evenly divided Two issues are on immigration and on guns, where you have overwhelming majorities, 85% on, on both, that, that basically agree on a framework commonsensically of how to deal with these issues. Now, there's no chance for these issues to advance in our broken political process. I think that produces a lot of apathy that you know turns people away from the system because it doesn't mean anything. Now, The, the political issue, right, that the country agrees on is you have 75% of the country, and 75%'s a lot, right? 75%'s a lot in a meeting of anything over 100 people. You got three quarters saying A, 45%. Mm -hmm. It's tough for me to win a 75% vote as a political consultant in a family vote, right? <laughs> rarely, it rarely happens. You have 75% of the country saying we do not want the Trump-Biden rematch. Every poll. Now, you have two- I think it might be higher than 75%, by the way, but go on. You have two political parties that you're told never agree on anything. Well, they agree on something. What they agree on is you're going to get what you get, and you're going to like the choice. Now, the Biden campaign, right, is constructed on, and I remember on the Bush campaign, the McCain campaign, you'd come to the networks and you would you would lay out your rationale and reporters sit and look at you. And, you know, you know if you were the Bush campaign, you're sitting there, ABC News journalists might say, I think you guys have a problem, given that the war was started on this premise of weapons of mass destruction. There are none. What say you about your strategy? Mm -hmm. So in that sense. Biden's going in and the, and the campaign is clearly this is the best economy ever. Um, and the age is not an issue. This, in fact, the age 
And I, and I think there's a fair rendering of the campaign. He's the wisest guy in the land, which may or may not be, but nobody in the country believes this. So what you have is you have two intractable institutions giving a choice that 75% don't want. You have issues that the polling says the American people see it one way and the Washington politicians see it another way. When you sit and you're trying to inform the public about a race that seems at a conceptual level warped by the reporting that's coming from Washington, which I think is increasingly out of touch because the news such as it is from Washington is distorted by the fact that it's really a position that's shared between two parties and about 25% of the country that leaves everybody else out. How do you possibly start to put a frame that contextualizes and explains that journalistically? Because the frame of the choice that is that comes from Washington, that comes from the Acela Corridor, is not empirically an accurate reflection of reality as it can be assessed in this moment. I think that, listen, uh, we had a little bit of this issue around Biden and age came up when we were talking about um, and debating on the show, gosh, a week or two ago, right after Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell had his second freezing episode in front of reporters. And, you know, a couple of weeks after Senator Dianne Feinstein couldn't, did not realize that she was supposed to vote and started to give a speech and was clearly confused. And there was this whole, you know, debate of, you know, and I, I think what Nikki Haley called it the most privileged, you know, nursing home in America, this, the United States Senate. Um, not a bad line, by the way, right. but but the point being, we we're talking about term, you know, term limits, age limits, you know, mental acuity tests, and somebody said when I suggested, well, what about term limits? And they said, you know, we have we already have term limits; they're called elections. And but that's not exactly true, and you know this better than most people that candidates that parties decide to support. A friend of mine for is running for Congress in Arizona. And she's having to jump through all sorts of hoops because, you know, the Democrats will, who will we support in the primary to then run in the general election? It isn't a fit. You don't get to just jump in and, and run against Mitch McConnell or Dianne Feinstein. Um, and the same thing is true with the presidential election. And President Biden, as the incumbent, has, you know, a huge amount of momentum and movement and support behind him to, to run for a second term by his own party, the Democratic Party establishment, who, for whatever reason, thus far, have not read the room or read the polls that show that even Americans who think that Trump's age is not a factor still believe that Biden's age is a factor. And you can't just say it's because they're all Trump supporters. That's not true, statistically. People are saying this because they are watching Joe Biden and they are watching the way he walks and the way he talks and it, and they are, and they're seeing this in their own families. I see it in my own family. I have 
to parents who are in their 80s. And you understand and recognize old age and the toll it takes if you're lucky to live that long. That's what happens. And eventually. And not not everybody at the same pace. The point being that we are now past the point everybody believes when the Democratic Party could have, somebody could have pressured Joe Biden to say, to stick to his, he did at one point say, I'll be a one-term president. Um, I believe, I could be wrong. Um, but we're now at a point where we're, we're past that point. And the Republicans are in a primary system where the primary voters are no longer emblematic or representative of general election Republican voters or independent or moderate voters, much less Democratic voters. So the primary system already rewards the most extremes. And then you see in the general, everybody trying to come back toward the center. And well, I didn't really mean it when I said that. And this is, let me attenuate and 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 modify that position so it's not so far right or not so far left to be more, you know, um, you know, appealing to the people in the middle, which is where you, you need to be in order to win a general election. So yeah, we're stuck now. And you're absolutely right. The vast majority of Americans, polls show, don't want to see Trump v. Biden on the ticket. They don't. And the vast majority of Americans think Biden is too old. And the and a, a, a majority of Americans are are repelled by Trump. Um, or half Americans. So we'll see what's going to happen. But, you know, despite the fact that, you know, you're right, 75, 80 percent of Americans don't want to see that choice on their on their ballot in 2024. That's what they're going to see at this point, unless something happens, unless um, something happens to Biden. Um, then I don't know what's going to happen. It'll be a free for all. Um and I don't know what might happen in the Republican, you know, you are, you spent your career, you know, in Republican politics, and you know that so well, you know, can you think <laughs> of, can you think of anything that is going to derail Trump's momentum thus far? He is only, as he's been indicted, his lead has only expanded. He skipped the debate, his lead expanded. Um, you know, I don't know what, what might happen to change the things up i think what has to happen is and by the way this is while polls show that right now trump and biden are statistically tied in a general election recent poll shows nikki haley would beat joe biden so but nikki haley's down in single digits and trump is up at 50 percent. i suspect you will see nikki haley move in new hampshire She's really? gonna, she's going to be the person with momentum in the fall. But in order for Trump to go down, he has to lose Iowa and New Hampshire. And I think really the only candidate that can get him in Iowa is Tim Scott. And there's really no evidence to suggest that it's it's coming together for him. New Hampshire is a little bit is a little bit different. And I and I think I was just in the state. My parents live in the state. Sister lives in the state. And. A lot of political experience there. I will say this, having driven down from Montreal, kind of in the northern part of, of New Hampshire, the lower part of the state is separated by Franconia Notch, right? So you have above the notch, below the notch, above the notch is kind of rural. That would have been General Balduck territory in the, in the last Senate election. But above the notch, there's an awful lot of Bobby Kennedy signs. Um, 
and you wouldn't expect to you wouldn't expect I did a town hall with him to see them there and so you know one of one of the features I think about that I think is one of the oddest aspects of this campaign is that the coverage of it is incessantly binary in meaning that Trump Biden mm-hmm. now either the no labels people have the money or they don't to get on the ballot or they don't we're gonna we're gonna find out soon if that's a real thing but democratic party doesn't have a vote on whether no labels is going to field the campaign they don't get a vote on bobby kennedy running as a libertarian so i think he might by the way i don't i'm just guessing but we have we have five candidates on a on a ballot of some prominence from cornell west and on on down and Mm -hmm. a political system that that is unresponsive in a, in a country where there's 132 different choices of ketchup um, is going to demand different choices at the at the end of the day. And so I think that that's one of the things we're watching is is politics, you know, is is the glass going to break after the tension it's been under over the last seven years? I, I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest. What happens, do you think, if we do have a ballot that it doesn't just have Trump and Biden on it as they're the Democratic and Republican nominees, but but a RFK Jr. and a Cornell West. And, you know, who knows else? Maybe Joe Manchin changes his mind and jumps in. I can't, I don't think he will, but I don't know. The first thing it would do is if you had more credible candidates on it, it expands the number of swing states, right? From like our 15, 16 to 25, 30, 35. And a real, a real legitimate three-way race puts the race into play in about 42 states, which we haven't seen in a very, very long time. But just as a practical matter, right, you know, if you listen to official Washington Democrats talk about this, what I hear them say is basically, we can't win a three-way race. And and here's the deal. This is not a track event. Right? That's not what politics is, right? It's not fair. Um, it's not an even race. One side runs uphill, one runs down. One's got ropes, one doesn't. One's got water, one doesn't, right? It sucks, right? I, I was, when I ran John McCain's campaign, it was outspent by $350 million. Yeah. In a, in a three-way race, if you're Joe Biden and his team, you have to figure out how to win that race. And if you can't win that race and you go into it saying, we can't conceivably win a three-way race, then the party as an institution really has to examine that and say, well, this is going to be what it's going to be. And we ought to have someone on the ballot who at least gives us a de minimis chance to be able to be able to win. But you can't forfeit a presidential campaign in August of 2023 on the hypothetical probabilities that Cornell West would be there, that um and there's a mythology, right? And, and I don't accept it, right? Hillary Clinton did not lose the election because Jill Stein was on the ballot. There's a lot of reasons she lost the election. That wasn't particularly an acute one. And I say this to someone who admires her. So I, I think that there's always a lot of revisionism. After an election, we tend to look at elections and say, well, the result was caused by the last major event of it, as opposed to the first major occurrence in it. And so what's happened, why it happened, what's happening now, what it means, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of subjectivity on this stuff, you know, depending, depending on how you see the, how you see the world. Other than to say, I think we're in a very volatile moment and, and volatility 
will drive a lot of disruption in this cycle is what I think. And if, I'm curious if you do think there's any chance that Biden will step down. Yeah, I think, I think any day there's a, there's a story, uh, there's a story in Axios and I, and I, and I, I have, uh, I have a lot of respect, a lot of admiration for, for President Biden, but as a practical matter, this is true. If you read the Axios story today, um, which is about the lengths the advanced team, right, has taken uh, to prevent him from falling, tripping, any of the issues that, that come from age. If someone who's run an organization, I think it's easy to write uh, if you're working for Politico or Axios, right, that there's some magical 20-something staffer out there who's got the ability to keep the president from tripping. Um, now, I don't have the ability to keep my 78-year-old dad from tripping, right, or my mom, and they don't with the president. So he's wearing sneakers, not dress shoes. He's up the short stairs, not the long one. And you look at an event he was at last week that was not generally reported, though it was reported in the pool report, right, that he spoke to 123 of the biggest donors in the Democratic Party, talked about his origin story for his race, and then he repeated it seconds later, almost verbatim, word for word, right? You can look at the instances when he got up on Nicole Wallace's show. Yeah, um, and walked, and walked out. off the set. And that's tough to do um, because if you're on a live TV set, um, you know it's a live, you know it's a you know it's a live TV set. So so at any day, disconnect. If if the president froze like Mitch McConnell did, it's that over. would be it's over. That's it's what over. I mean by it. it you, could, you fall down the steps of the plane, it's over. So and what is the Democratic day, Party? What are they all doing in case that happens? Because it, listen, I rem, you know Mitch McConnell fell. That's why he's having, according to his doctor, these weird freezing moments because he had a terrible concussion after falling. Barbara Walters fell at the French embassy in Washington, D.C. She was never the same after that. Right. My mom fell last Thanksgiving. She was in the hospital for a week because she hit her head. When you are in your 80s and you fall, it is a serious event. Very serious. And this is a president who looks uns unsteady often when he's walking. And all it takes is tripping and falling on your way to go brush your teeth in the morning. I, I'm not, so I've lived through this, right? Which happened over the over the rise of Trump in the Republican Party. It's just an objective fact that every person who went on television in 2015, 2016, with incredibly few exceptions, who was a Republican, said one thing on the camera, said one thing off the camera about him. Joe Scarborough just said this regarding Democrats who go on his show. Every Democrat who comes on says one thing on the air, says another thing about this off the air. What are they saying off the air? Off the air, every Democrat says they don't think that Biden is capable of running a winning winning election. No one wants to be first, right? No one wants to be on point. Um, but 
None of this is lost on the American people mm-hmm. who know intuitively. Yes, that's what I mean. We were talking about this at the beginning. That it's all and, bullshit. And that's why David Ignatius wrote that column, which apparently really got it. Listen, the other thing, it's interesting. We haven't talked about this at all. But um, the other thing that I'm hearing is something that Democrats are saying behind the scenes and that nobody is saying publicly is that they feel that um, President Biden's um, decisions to have his son Hunter, you know, going on Air Force One with him to Ireland and going to a state dinner with it major mistake you can love your son and support your son in his recovery from a serious drug addiction and it doesn't have to be in the public eye and the first time your son calls you from a business dinner while he's on speakerphone with a bunch of guys who you don't know you say don't ever do that to get again or you know the whole issue of why is he working for Verisma? Why didn't somebody say years ago, this is not a good look. You don't have any expertise. You're clearly being offered the job because you're my son. You can't do that. There seems to be a blind spot, according to many Democrats, for the president when it comes to his son. And I think it's going to hurt him in the campaign. It's a uh, speaking truth to power. It's is hard said than said said than done you know and, and one of the greatest white house aides of all time was john kennedy's kenny kenny donnelly and his ambition in life was to be the first person in the oval office every day to tell jack kennedy he was full of shit about something and um that typically is is not the route to getting uh you know um is kenny donnelly it's uh it's not the route to get in to getting ahead in politics and um you know that that's what that is. Um, I, let me ask you this about Hunter Biden. I, I talked about this in a um, in a in a talk I gave. Seems to me that what Hunter Biden put aside, you know, whether he should be on Air Force One or or all of this, for certain, um, he's entitled to some grace in the society. Um, lot of. Uh, politicians have kids um he's had a hard life um by any objective measure um his life went off the rails completely um whatever for all of us our lowest moments right i mean all of his right are are front and center and I guess like my question that I posed to a room full of Republicans, I said, what do you want to do with him? You want him to kill himself? Will that satisfy the bloodlust? Should we execute him? Wait, 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 do you want him to start using hard drugs again? Would that satisfy you? And, and it's the complete absence of, of grace to me in the moment like stepping back the absence of kindness um well wishes that i can tell you 20 members of congress like like that both parties with kids who have gone uh in or in recovery do do we really as a country want to make this Right, that you run for office, your your family 
is in the free fire zone for, for destruction. You've got an anorexic daughter. Your opponent's going to try to drive her to suicide. And, and so I think that this is an elemental story about American culture and about American life. And my, my fundamental criticism, the defect of American political coverage, is American political coverage posits that American culture flows out of American politics, as opposed to American politics flowing out of American culture. And when you cover it, that politics is at the headwaters, it has a profoundly warping and distorting distorting effect. And I, I'm curious like how, how you think about it, because you, you will be remembered as a world-class journalist, someone talented who had a, had a great career in all of it. But unlike most journalists, right, you, you will have played a role in some astounding number of people that you'll probably never know the number. You'll never know all the stories. But man, you helped a lot of people. And I and I wonder like how you how you feel about that, you know, as as a as a part of of your story, your legacy, and and in the context of a of a Hunter Biden as you as you get up there and talk about it. Because I'm not talking about immunizing him from a serious gun charge. I'm not talking about um, excusing behavior. I'm not talking about kind of an absence of accountability, accountability and responsibility. These things happen, you know, when 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 people have to make amends, you know, from from things they've done wrong. But I, I'm curious like, on, on your kind of worldview on this stuff. Well, first of all, um, thank you for your remarks about that. Um, I still get messages on social media from people who write me and say that my book helped get them sober or in many cases you saved my life and it's I once said to my kids I think that's probably the one thing I'll be remembered for the most you know there are lots of great journalists um so I feel very grateful that um I was able to take a really difficult chapter in my life and help other people get through their difficult chapters in their lives um I do think that Hunter Biden's addiction has been certainly weaponized politically. Um, was there any reason for Marjorie Taylor Greene to hold up a picture of Hunter Biden from his laptop doing something, you know, under the influence of drugs that was embarrassing and crude and had no business being in, in a congressional committee hearing? Um and I do wonder where those congressmen who have people in recovery in their lives are and why they aren't speaking up a little bit more about the way we talk about people who have suffered from drug addiction. We know, as I said to you at the beginning of this podcast, that this is an issue that crosses political lines. We know that the opioid crisis began in the heart of Appalachia and in many red states where there were you know, under and unemployed people who had lost their jobs in coal mines and in factories um, and had injuries and were prescribed a drug that would make them feel better and led them down a terrible path of addiction and eventually death. Um, so 
this is not a blue or a red state issue. It's not a city or a rural issue. It is an every American issue. It is a uniquely American issue, um, the opioid crisis. Um, and I just, I think it does, it is a terrible thing to ridicule somebody or denigrate somebody for what they did while in the grip of addiction. And I don't say that he needs, he should be excused for any crimes that he committed. He should not. Um, everybody should be equal under the law. By the way, uh, it is very difficult to find somebody who had, would, would have been indicted for the kind of gun charge that he's been indicted for, who didn't also use that gun for a crime in commission of a crime. I'll also, I'll also, I'll be very direct about it. Uh, he is being treated unfairly by the, by the law. Um, when you look at a prominent person um, and you look at a person in politics, particularly in this moment of time, you, you have to look, whether it's Alvin Bragg in New York or it's Hunter Biden, is there politics influencing this? And when the answer is an obvious yes, on the basis of, well, Give me the list of other people who've been similarly charged, right? So, so the issue with Hunter Biden is, would the 25-year-old black kid be charged with it? If the answer is yes, by all means, charge him. But if the only person in America who would be charged for this is the president's son, because the attorney general doesn't want criticism, well, that's an issue, too. Yeah, and I think. I mean, and, ju and, and just plainly staring. I think that's plainly staring this. You know, this story in the face. Yeah, and so we're clear that when when the, these gun charges lie. I mean, on its face, he broke. He violated the law. He lied. He said, "I'm not a drug user," and in fact, he later on revealed he was a drug user. So on its face, he did violate the law. The reality is this particular crime is never charged unless you go on to use that that gun in commission of a crime. In this right. case, Hunter Biden had this unloaded gun for 11 days until uh, his sister-in-law took it away from him because she thought he was going to kill himself. The same thing is true of the taxes. He repaid all those taxes. I, I mean, I know people who got in trouble with the IRS and didn't pay all their taxes and you know, the IRS hounded them and in some cases took their driver's license from them and, you know, made all sorts of arrangements on a payment plan for them, but they didn't get charged with a crime. So I, I just I just think it, you have to be clear about all of that there. Um, it, it's anyway. I'm just more I just think that and I it's funny, I asked Bobby Kennedy this in my town hall that I anchored because he is a person in long-term recovery. He was very addicted to, to heroin or I think it was heroin or cocaine. He was addicted to drugs and um, has been in recovery for many, many years. And I, and I wanted to know from him what he felt about seeing, you know, somebody else's addiction weaponized in a way politically. And um he didn't really answer the question, but he did talk very, um, uh, in a very interesting way about how he thought we as a country should be approaching recovery, which was holistic and not and judgment free. I, I just think it feels like Hunter Biden is fair game and, and to a lot of people. And listen, um, I don't think, I think there've been many, many, many mistakes in the way, um, 
the Biden family has handled this and Hunter Biden has handled this and even President Biden has handled this and in having his son be so public. I'm not in that family. I don't understand, uh, you know, the dynamics there. And I certainly don't understand what it's like to be the father of a child, to be the father who has lost two children and almost lost this son to a terrible drug addiction and what that must be like. I, I, I can't fathom if one of my kids uh, was, had gone through this. So um, I don't think anyone can. I don't, I don't think, think anybody can. Think, and I just I think, think it's, it's a bipartisan can. issue. And I really, I really do wish more people as to, to bring it now to full circle. I really wish more people in Congress, as you say, and in life would be a little more graceful about that aspect of the story. You know, everything else, let's debate. And, you know, is it fair to charge? Was it a violation of law? Should he have been working for Burisma in the first place? Did he oh. lie about funds from China? Blah, blah. That's all fair game sure. and, and open for debate. I, I wish his addiction was not used as just some to bludgeon him. The last question. 2024, the story of the year is going to be the presidential election. Yeah. But is that the story? Is it the choice between Biden and Trump or whomever and whomever? Or is the story that the country may be about to, no hyperbole, who's taking everyone literally what they say to cash in its democracy, that if you say it, right, journalistically, my my response to it is, I, I take it seriously. I, you're saying it. I have no reason to believe you don't mean it. What is the story? Is it the choice between the candidates? Or is it a deeper choice in our society on a fault line between a continuation of democracy, a Republican form of government, or a sharp turn away from it? I don't think that's how the voters are looking at it. I don't think yeah, anybody. That's correct. I don't think any American is thinking I'm going to go vote to continue democracy or end democracy. They're voting for who's going to make the economy better for me. Why, you know, who's going to create more jobs? Who's going to solve the immigration crisis? Even though that's actually a congressional issue uh, and not a presidential issue. Um, you know, who's going to keep funding Ukraine? People have strong feelings uh, about the funding of Ukraine. Um, so in that respect, I don't think, and, and you lay out the presidential election in very stark terms. Um, I don't think the voters are going to go and vote in those stark terms. And in that respect, I think, I don't know, I have faith, Steve, I do have faith that this country um, and this amazing democracy and this incredible melting pot of divergence when it comes to cultures and races and creeds and ages. And I just think that, I think we're going to find our way. I do. 
I agree with you, but that is not like my natural default position. So I'm You're like, a little like Eeyore, I'm, I think. Well, I'm, somebody, <laughs> I'm somebody like, I'm somebody who's in that, who's in that, uh, who's in that tide getting pulled out a little bit. So I got to, I got to swim back right towards my, you know, towards my faithfulness part of it. But anecdotally, you are correct where the question has been put in certain states, in certain geographies between a real acute extremism on the ballot versus whether it's a mainstream Democrat, Republican alternative, the American people have rejected the extremism pretty overwhelmingly. Yeah. If it we'll see if it we'll see if it continues. Um I appreciate your time and your insight. What a pleasure to have you for an hour. Today. It was so fun talking to you, Steve. Thanks so much.